Remain standing for the gospel lesson, and the gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents the word of the Lord. As some of you know, I took a quick trip uh, down to uh, West Virginia. We had a Redecho to go through. That's a new name probably for a lot. It was for me. It's a very strong, they call it a land hurricane, and we had property damage, and uh, uh, so um, I went to check on all the damage, and it was uh, in some ways considerable. Knocked many, many trees down. But when I was um, uh, down there, uh, my twin sister asked me if I would be preaching on the Sunday when I got back. And I said, yes. And she asked me, what are you preaching on? And I said, sin. <laughs> and um, I said to her, what do you think of sin? And she replied, I'm against it. She could tell I was spoofing a little bit there, but she's not always sure whether I'm teasing or not. But uh, she said, no, tell me, what are you really preaching on? I said, well, I am preaching on sin. I'm preaching on the forgiveness of sins. I'm preaching on a series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed, and I'm at the place where it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Uh, then... Uh, Continuing to tease her a little bit, I said, uh, you do believe in the forgiveness of sins, don't you? And she really didn't pick up on my sarcasm there or whatever. And uh, she responded uh, uh, in a most serious tone, sure. I then asked her, well, what if the person is a murderer? And she responded in a louder, sure. And... Um, she says, even if they've committed five murders, God would forgive them. Do you believe what my sister said? Do you believe that? 
And if you do, doesn't that make forgiveness pretty cheap? Does it? A mass murderer to be forgiven? And if you were pressed, I would think you would say, even on his deathbed, let's assume it's a man, not all mass murderers are men, but most of them are. On his deathbed, he repents and says, I want to invite Jesus into my heart. I'm, I, I want to be forgiven. Um, what do you think his chances are? Well, that's a serious question, isn't it? When you have been wronged in a most serious way, wounded to your core, how easy then is it to forgive sins? In the abstract, it seems pretty easy, but when it gets personal, it seems much more difficult. I've had people over the years to sit in my office and say to me, you know, I've been hurt so deeply by that person that I don't think I can ever forgive them. And I hope you don't hold it against me, but that's just the way it is. Well, I want to address that subject today. And I want you to see that the most basic truth that we have in the text today uh, is about, in some sense, the forgiveness of sins. And I have a long thesis statement, so bear with me. And I want you to see this. We must, as Christians, cherish and embrace the fact that God is merciful and forgiving. And that the basis of our hope of fellowship with God resides in his great love and mercy exhibited to us in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to work up to that. For I'm not going to deal with my text until toward the end. But just hear me out. I'll come back to this. There are some real barriers, scriptural barriers even, when it comes to thinking about the forgiveness of sins. The first barrier is the character of God. I want you just simply to, to uh, rehearse with me, if you will. Who exactly God is? If we take seriously the doctrine of the holiness of God and we understand something about who God is and his disposition and his implacable, unbending hostility to sin or that which threatens his creation... Then we might ask the question, who can be saved? Hear the prophet Habakkuk on the holiness of God. He said, the Lord's, the Lord's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. The Lord's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. He says that in the first chapter. Or consider the words of the author to the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Listen to it. Our God is a consuming fire. And then listen to this description in the book of Revelation of our Lord himself as he comes for judgment. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, it so happens that I have delved in what is called um, the uh, comparative religion, if you will, uh, through the years to some extent. And one of the interesting things I find even among pagan religions, religions that necessarily believe in one God, that may believe in many gods, polytheists. But they all have a sense, it seems to me, take Hinduism, for instance, that the heart of everything is some kind of holy burning fire. And this holy burning fire, whatever it is, it lets us know that something is wrong with all of us. And that we are not right. The only question is, how can things be put right? Well, Christians know that it is through Christ and through the pardon of our sins, because he paid the price of our sins and God, in his great love and mercy, forgives us. But how often we think that that's awfully cheap. We look at the forgiveness of sins or the quality of God's mercy and we take it to be kind of cheap at times. Grace is cheap. But my friend, in the scriptures, grace is a costly thing. It finally costs the death of the Lord's only begotten son. And it is through him that we have the forgiveness of sins. But let me continue let me continue with the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah knew that forgiveness was not an easy thing. When he was in the temple, he had a vision. And the angels of God, he saw, and he saw the Shekinah glory of God. He saw the glory of God, and he heard the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. Look at his response. Here is a zealous young man, and by the standards of any human community, he was an excellent and good person. But immediately when he has that experience, he falls to his face and he says, Woe in me, woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The reason sometimes we think that sins is so easily forgivable is because we don't see it in the light of who God is and his holiness. Moreover, there are a number of verses in the New Testament to warn us against believing in easy and cheap forgiveness. Let me remind you of a couple of these places. One of them was read to you today. And that is uh, that passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, which seems to say on its face that there is no forgiveness of sins following a serious departure from the faith. 
Or take the passage in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, which seems to say that there is no forgiveness of sins after you have come to Christ. If you should baptize, that's it. Or you slide back after your baptism, that's it. Now, this was read such by those who came after the apostles. You would think that those who came after the apostles would understood them, understand them best because they were, lived out their lives in proximity to them and to their ministries. There was a shepherd called the Shepherd of Hermes. The Shepherd of Hermes probably wrote his work uh, as early as 85 A.D., no later than 112 A.D., he probably knew the Apostle John. And surely he had dialogue with him. And in his, in his writings, he had a series of, of uh, dreams in some sense. And apparently he had sinned himself after he had committed his way to the Lord, a serious sin. We're not talking about light sins. Usually there were, there were four sins that were considered uh, unforgivable apostasy, that is, turning over Holy Scripture uh, to the authorities and abandoning the faith, adultery, murder, well, those three. And so those sins were not forgivable. They struggled with it. But he had a revelation that God will forgive him one time after he had committed his way to the Lord. Did he really understand the New Testament? He must have been reading the writings of the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Or take Tertullian, who lived around 200. Tertullian even says, a church father that many people depend upon, and, and yes, he is a, a great commentator on many things, but he had a very severe understanding of the Christian life. He says that the shepherd of Hermes was loose in the way that he applied Scripture. There is no forgiveness of sins if you should lapse and fall away from the Lord through a serious sin. And you can understand some of the New Testament language. Jesus says there was a sin that's unforgivable. It's called the unpardonable sin. Or what about the sin unto death or the mortal sin that you find in 1 John chapter 5? What about blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? Now, when I add all of this up, I hope you get the impression that whatever we believe about the forgiveness of sins, it cannot be cheap and easy. We can't just simply say, bang, you're forgiven. But I do say this. In spite of all of those verses, the early church in many quarters misunderstood the gospel. Now, that's a bold statement to make. It seems to me the shepherd of Hermes and Tertullian have misunderstood the gospel. Moreover, a lot of contemporary Christians will go to the book of Hebrews and read those passages that have to do with judgment and warning and take them out of context and almost not see, really, why the creed had to put in the words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now think of that. Think of that. 
in the fourth century, it was such a problem that they put in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let me say why they put that in and how you should understand God's holiness and God's judgment and God's justice in the light of the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now I get to the text, Luke 15. I want you to look briefly for a moment at this scripture. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was eating, having table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. They would gather around to hear him and they had table fellowship. Now, if I invite you to my house to eat with me, that doesn't say a whole lot, except that maybe we're friends. It has nothing to do with clean and unclean or has nothing to do with whether you're a sinner or not. But in the context in which Jesus offered table fellowship, it was an act of reception of the person. Remember that the Pharisees of the first century had walled themselves off from the Gentiles lest they be defiled. Many sects in Judaism would not extend table fellowship to one of the nations, a Gentile lest they be defiled. We do not share our food with dogs, for instance. It would be an unclean thing for two reasons. First, the person may be a sinner, and secondly, they may be ritually unclean, which would also be a sin. What does Jesus do? He extends fellowship to people that the Pharisees particularly despised. Think of a tax collector. I don't have any problem despising the tax collector myself. I don't know about you. Particularly around April 15th. Becomes a burden. An increasing burden. And we've yet to see what a burden it's going to be. Prostitutes. Those who were outcasts, Jesus extended table fellowship to. Moreover, they showed up at his meetings wherever he went. He was taught. He taught them. They were taught by him. This offended the Pharisees. Now, let me say about being offended. You know, a Christian should not be easily offended. Catherine Paulus, a lady who was a member of this church and died many years ago, and if you weren't around here to meet her, you're the poorer for it. She gave me my most famous quote that I've used over and over. It's, mu it's as much an offense to take offense as it is to be an offense. Now, my friends, Christians ought not to be easily offended. But on the other hand, there are things that are offenses that we should be offended at. That statement only says don't be easily offended. You should be offended about some things, but here the Pharisees had no basis for being offended. They misunderstood who God was and who they were in the light of this holy God. 
And they were offended that Jesus extended table fellowship to sinners. What were they offended at? They were offended ultimately and finally over the mercy of God. Now think of that for a moment. God extends his mercy to us, for we are not sinners. But to extend mercy to those people, that's just too much. And they were offended about that. Now, Jonah, in some sense, if you recall your Bible, was also offended about the mercy of God, was he not? When he went to Nineveh, why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? He was afraid that if he preached God's word, some people would repent and turn to the Lord and they would be forgiven. Think about that. They were offended over the fact that God is merciful as well as holy. And look at this. Jesus tells them two parables. Now, he tells them these two parables, and let me say a couple things about parables. Number one, a parable usually has one main meaning. It's not like an allegory where everything means something. It's usually making one major point. And secondly, Jesus taught about 50 parables that are recorded in the New Testament. These two come before the, maybe the greatest of all parables, the parable of the son, the two sons. But these two parables are making a point about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? And if you make a point about the kingdom of God, you're making a point about the king. And who is the king of the kingdom? Jesus himself. And who is Jesus? He's the very expressed image of God. Therefore, Jesus is telling you what God is like. This is what God is like. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety and nine that are safe in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? And notice when he finds it, this is God's mission to the sinner. He rejoices. This is God's mercy being set on display in the person of Jesus. We sing the hymn, Sinners Does He Receive. Jesus Sinners Receives. Based on this text, they rejoice over the mercy of God that is extended to a lost sinner. The second one, then he calls uh, his friends, he rejoices, and the, and the second one is a woman. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin and in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
sinners Jesus does receive. Now think of the Pharisees. They despised the fact that God would extend his mercy to such that Jesus was extending tableship, fellowship to. Despising his mercy. Now what is the point of these two parables? That we are to cherish and embrace the mercy of God for our lives and for our neighbor. It is that simple. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 5. In that while we were yet sinners, unworthy and filthy, Christ died for us. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 makes it quite clear that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is what? The gift. What is the gift? Well, in that case, the faith. It is the gift of God. And God in his great mercy enables us to embrace himself. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You say, well, pastor, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You know, I'm sure you do. But let me tell you that we need to embrace this in the creed. And let me tell you why. Number one, we are beset by philosophies today that we have to affirm we believe in the forgiveness of sins because these philosophies do not and cannot extend any kind of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Let me name one, naturalism. Naturalism, what is naturalism? A lot of our, you might say, uh, the, the elites in our society often embrace a kind of naturalism. And I would describe naturalism this way, as believing that human beings are simply the product of material things put together. Every thought that you have is a result of your material brain. You really don't have a soul. You're just a, a collection, if you will, of, of different kinds of cells brought together. There is no such thing in their minds as freedom. There is no such thing as then in their concept as, uh, in one sense, good behavior or bad behavior. There's just behavior. Now you say, Pastor, I haven't heard that. Well, you have to sit in a philosophy class sometimes and listen to philosophers talk. And they really believe that there's no such thing as sin. Human beings just act a certain way based on their biology and genetics. That's it. There are no sins. There's nothing to be forgiven for. It's just a natural thing. Some people behave this way and some people behave that way. You say, well, some people really behave reprehensibly and they could hurt and injure people, and they do. They say, well, you, that's just the way they're wired. You might want to lock them up to keep people safe, but as far as being guilty of anything, no, that's just the way they are. Those who embrace that kind of materialism can never understand what it means to be forgiven of sins. There's another kind 
a philosophy that we have to embrace and confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that, I would say, would be with the progressive and the liberals in our midst who do not really believe that you need forgiveness because, after all, God's just in the business of forgiving everyone and he forgives you for everything, whether you ask or not, or whether you embrace Christ or not. Forgiveness is just there. They still believe in sin and they still believe in forgiveness, but they do not believe in repentance. In their book, forgiveness is just cheap. It's for everyone. Would you want anyone not to be forgiven at the last day? Come on now, you're just uh, adhering too strictly to some of those words that Jesus said, like I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but through me. Lighten up. We're all all right with God. After all, God's a good guy. They also miss out on his holiness, do they not? And so they cannot extend a true and genuine offer of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not do that either. Notice in every passage here there was repentance and a turning to that one who can forgive sins. My friend, when we confess we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are affirming that God in Jesus Christ is merciful and gracious toward us and that if we will receive him, we receive all the riches of heaven itself, one being the forgiveness of sins. Now, back to my sister. She's a, a very devout Christian. And um, I know that she struggled in her life to forgive for when she was a young mother with two small children, she was abandoned. And it took a long, long time to come to grips with that and to offer forgiveness. But she did. Now, when she responded to me, she was, she'd forgotten about that. The pain was no longer there. But my friend, let me remind you that there'll be times in your life, and maybe some of you are going through it now, where it is extraordinarily difficult to forgive someone because you are hurt and injured. But remember the confession. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And if we cannot forgive those that offend us and injure us, how can we expect to be forgiven before the Lord whom we have offended and his divine majesty? Notice the prayer we pray every Lord's day. Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. It goes together. You need to affirm, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins because the world itself has lost the concept. Now, you can lose the concept and the consequences are still there. But part of the healing power 
of the gospel ministry is that when Jesus said to those, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more, it has a healing, restorative effect that no psychologist or counselor can provide. It has a healing of the soul to know that all is well with your soul. Those early church fathers, many of them misunderstood the gospel because they failed to read those difficult judgmental passages in the light of the Lord's parable of the one lost sheep or the lost son or the lost coin. Let us affirm, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen.